It is a momentous election in Nigeria. How will a new generation of young voters sway the result? Midnight arrests and military trials. Tunisia's president is going after his critics like never before. A year since the invasion of their country, Ukrainian journalists speak about the toll of war on them and their profession. Hello, I'm Meenakshi Ravi, and you're at The Listening Post, where we analyze the role the media play in global events. In Africa's most populous country, Nigeria, an electric election campaign has come to an end as voting gets underway for a new president. This could have been like most recent Nigerian elections, where the two main parties, the All Progressives Congress and the People's Democratic Party, are the most significant contenders. However, a surprise third force, defined not so much by a party but by a candidate, Peter Obi, has shaken up this presidential race. Riding a wave of support from an overwhelmingly young set of people, Obi has infused an element of excitement and also uncertainty into proceedings. His fans, most of whom have coordinated, conversed and campaigned for him on social media, represent a newly politically active segment of Nigeria's very youthful population. They're skeptical about mainstream media outlets, irreverent towards establishment parties and evangelical about the need to jumpstart a country weighed down by multiple issues. Whether that enthusiasm translates into votes and whether this election could be the inflection point so many Nigerians talk about is what remains to be seen. A country of more than 215 million people, 70% below the age of 30, more than 50% online. Nigeria isn't just Africa's most populous nation and one of its youngest, it's also the most connected. More hours are spent on social platforms in Nigeria than anywhere else in the world. So it's no surprise what a force social media is in this year's elections. There are 18 presidential candidates, and most of them are all over the Nigerian social space. Leading the pack, there's Bola Ahmed Tinubu from the ruling All Progressives Congress, Atiku Abu Bakr of the People's Democratic Party, and then the wild card, Peter Obi from the Labour Party. He has surged into contention on the back of a social media charged campaign. Peter Obi, uh, who is one of the main candidates in this round of the election, his candidacy emerged as, well, sort of like a surprise because the Labour Party is not like a main party in Nigeria and he's been able to really capture the attention of young people. But not just capture the attention of young people, young people have been able to use social media to canvas support for him, to do town halls for him. It's the time that they feel connected to a candidate. Obedience, the, the people who support Obi, they have also used social media to engage, inspire. Nigerians have a great sense of humor. So you see that humor come out in the campaign with memes or pictures or videos. To be honest, despite the, the knowledge that yes, this is a very polarizing campaign, it's also been in a way quite inspiring. Providing much of that spark has been a generation of young Nigerians plugging into politics in a big way for the first time. Top-ranking Nigerians wearing their finest robes watched in dignified silence as the climax of Independence Day was reached. 
the democratic process in the country has been severely tested since independence from colonial rule in 1960. Periods of civilian governance have been punctuated with military coups and dictatorships. It was only in 1999 that the last military ruler stepped down and reinstated a democratic system. This is the seventh election since then, and this decade has seen a so-called democracy generation come of age. This election hasn't been the galvanizing political moment, though. That came in 2020, when widespread anger at rampant police brutality united protesters on the streets with a hashtag online. SARS was the police squad responsible for extreme violence, including rape, torture, and executions. The sustained campaigning forced the government to disband the unit. In essence, uh, what the NSAS movement did was two things: it helped the young people uh, basically to learn how to organize themselves on social media, but secondly, and perhaps most importantly, it helped them to organize offline. And it is this offline organization. Uh, that has helped them in the various causes uh, that they want to uh, promote. Uh, one of which is the Peter Abe candidacy. The NSAS movement has been a training ground. They've seen it work. They've seen the success of NSAS movement on Twitter, on social media, and it makes sense for them to use the same platform to aggregate their voice, uh, to to come together. And say we want our voice and our participation to be known in this round of the election. We want to have a say on who is governing this country, and so they've been able to use that to even excite young Nigerians to go get registered for voters' cards. So it's just giving them a platform to be able to support their candidate of choice. And answers is definitely how this started. Skyrocketing social media use has a significant downside. This election cycle has been marked by a level of disinformation that most Nigerian outlets just cannot fact-check fast enough. The Independent National Electoral Commission (INEC) has been a regular target of fake news. At the beginning of this year, it warned of quote the malicious efforts to put the commission in a bad light. An investigation in January by the BBC revealed an industry of fake news and malign social media influencing, with political parties bankrolling the production of misinformation against one another. Many of the stories and narratives prod and poke at the existing fissures in Nigerian society. Religion is one of them, and with two leading Muslim candidates, Tinubu and Abu Bakar, and one Christian, Peter Robi, religiously charged fake news and scaremongering. Has been inescapable, and that's not all. The three main candidates are, for the first time, also represent sort of our three fulcrums in Nigeria when it comes to the three major ethnic groups: the Yoruba, the Igbo, and the Hausa Fulani. So each of these three presidential candidates represent one of those ethnic groups, and so yes, it's made this one of the most divisive elections that we've had since 1999. And yes, social media has helped. To amplify hateful messages, amplify stereotypes. The kind of rhetoric that we are seeing on on social media is is often targeted at、uh, basically offending the religious sensibilities of the audience to which it is targeted. So, for example, in the case of Peter Abel, there have been some memes、uh, circulated in、uh, Muslim-dominated social media communities of him being comfortable with alcohol、uh, and so on and so forth. And so, basically, the idea is to 
cast him as somebody who may be of loose character. For the Muslims, uh, there was one particularly ludicrous piece of fake news that was circulated that um, the candidate of the APC, Bola Tinubu, was set to wed a much younger lady from Katina. The idea was to offend people down south of a man of that age, you know, getting married to a much younger lady. Disinformation and misinformation in this round of the election has been so rife that it's found its way into traditional media. And I think that really is the difference this time around. For instance, uh, a fake statement from INEC, that's the electoral body, was being circulated on social media saying they were going to probe Tinobu for corruption allegations. And this same fake statement was reported by some television houses and INEC had to debunk it. One of the media houses who ran the report, Arise TV, has now apologized to the APC presidential candidate. But not many people are going to hear the news to debunk that particular video. It's already gone viral. People are going to believe it and people are going to vote based on probably what they saw a day before the election that is probably fake. And that's the role this information has played in this round of election that is really, really worrying. This is a critical time for Nigeria. Under the administration of outgoing President Muhammadu Buhari, the economy, Africa's largest, has been growing, but so have inflation and unemployment, while more than 60% of Nigerians live in poverty. Security is a significant issue, one that isn't limited to the violence of insurgent groups like Boko Haram. Carjackings, kidnappings and murder are all on the rise. Civic institutions like the media are vulnerable to political intimidation and bribery. Across the country, disillusionment, even anger at the status quo, are palpable. For many, this election is the last real opportunity for Nigeria to start correcting course. More than 93 million Nigerians are registered to vote. 12 million of them will be doing so for the very first time. I'm so happy. <laughs> and so, while that increased interest is obvious, what, what is now left is to see the extent to which that now translates into higher voter turnout among young people. So what we have is plenty of potential energies. The question now for Nigeria's young people is if they are going to be able to convert that potential energy into the kinetic energy of votes, uh, because that is the only language that is going to get you any change uh, with regard to the political establishment. In Tunisia, there's been a sudden and sharp tightening of the screws on critics of President Kais Sayed. There's been a string of high-profile arrests. Johanna Hus has been tracking the story. Well, Mina, it's been nearly two years since President Sayed put the brakes on what many thought was Tunisia's democratic success story since the 2011 Arab Spring. In 2021, Sayed suddenly sacked the government that he was part of, decided to rule by decree and rewrote the constitution. Now, institutional checks and balances, be they parliamentary or judicial, have been eroded. And this past month, the pressure has intensified. The arrests of more than a dozen political figures, trade unionists and media personnel represent a crackdown on dissent unlike anything since 2011. Many of the arrests were without warrants. People were dragged out of their homes and some were even put on trial in military courts. Amongst those arrested is Nouradin Buttar, the head of Tunisia's largest private media outlet, Mosaic FM. 
According to his lawyer, Buttar has been questioned about his radio station's finances as well as Mosaic's editorial line, which has shifted over the course of Syed's rule from optimism about his leadership to skepticism and criticism of his rule. Tunisian journalists took to the streets to protest Buttar's arrest, as well as state repression and attempts to intimidate the media. The president hit back. What those in custody have been arrested for are offences like abuse of power or assaulting state security, vague charges that critics say are trumped up and a ploy to shift the blame and deflect attention from the country's failing economy and public services. Thanks, Joe. For 12 months, Russia's war on Ukraine has eclipsed virtually every other news story around the world. The ramifications of the conflict cannot be understated, neither can the role of the media. This past year, we've covered brief sparks of dissent amidst severe restrictions imposed by Moscow. The unprecedented blocking of Russian media outlets across the Western world. The complexities of reporting the conflict. And now, a year since the invasion, we're taking a look at what the war has meant for Ukrainian media. For journalists there, this has been a time of immense risks, personal dilemmas and shifting paradigms. Many became war reporters overnight. Some, in Russian-occupied territory, had to redraw editorial lines or just flee. All of them had to deal with the constraints of martial law. As Ukraine enters the second year of the war, we spoke with three Ukrainian journalists about what life and work is like in a country under siege. I think the February 24th is the most difficult day in my family and professional life. It was a very difficult choice what to do, uh, to rush to my um, newsroom and to do my job or to take care of my children or to take care of my parents. So my name is Marichka Padoka and I have been delivering news at One Plus One, a Ukrainian TV channel, for the past 20 years. Народ України зазнав невиправданої та неспровокованої атаки російських. We didn't have a single statement from the president at that point, and we just decided to go live and just talk to people. I understood that Russians were everywhere; that it was a really a full scale invasion and uh, people were terrified. I felt uh, not just being an anchor, being a therapist, a psychologist, uh, a military person. At that point, I couldn't differentiate the sound of uh, air defense system and the sound of explosion, but I had to somehow explain what uh, the sound we were hearing. We decided to create a backup studio in a secret location. We had to spend very many nights at work in our underground parking because of the curfew in our sleeping bags and then wake up and go brush our teeth and get ready to work live for our audience. Many Ukrainian journalists were for the first time in their life 
in the situation when they do not just report on war, but they report on war in their own country. Ah, on rocket. With their own relatives and friends and uh, children being in danger. For me, the most difficult time was when my husband was the, a participant of this uh, battle for Kiev. He was offline for five days. And actually, I was very worried, but work distracted me. Our audience expects us to be calm and to be professional, but I also trust our audience because they don't always expect you to hold, hold back your emotions. We now live in a very real world when real emotions, even when you're being a professional TV anchor, are acceptable. I feel like every day going through these challenges and hardships and very difficult hours staying in a bomb shelter, it's my contribution to one big victory that is absolutely going to happen to Ukraine. It's my biggest professional dream to announce that Ukraine has won and the war is over. Два місяці ми просто гасили пожежі, які виникали всюди, і нам телефонували і писали люди вдень і вночі. Більшість із українських журналістів, особливо місцевих, вони не мали жодного досвіду роботи у зонах бойових дій. Мене звати Ліна Кущ, я перша секретар Національної спілки журналістів України. Ми займалися евакуацією, допомагали в евакуації і облаштуванні журналістів із зон бойових дій, із окупованих територій. У нас були дуже різноманітні запити із приводу безпеки, засобів захисту, із приводу безпечних шляхів евакуації. Ми шукали транспорт, ми шукали притулки, де могли б розселити журналістів. У нас був список, який ми, над яким ми працювали вдень і вночі, намагаючись дізнатися, хто і де перебуває. Кожна звістка про загибель колег, вона відгукувалася болем. Тому що багатьох із тих, хто загинув торік журналістів, я знала особисто. Понад дві тисячі українських журналістів залишили місце проживання, переїхали до інших регіонів України або за кордон. 30% українських медіа від лютого призупинили свою діяльність. Приблизно чверть українських журналістів сьогодні працюють без зарплати. Багато колег скаржаться на емоційне вигорання, на професійне вигорання, на те, що вже немає сил впоратися із тим потоком новин. Якщо війна йде у твоїй країні, дуже важко залишатися об'єктивним. І вони знають, що... Ми бачимо, що з боку українських журналістів присутня більша самоцензура. Майже цілий рік українські медіа вони тримали ну, якісь такі негласну домовленість, відмовляючись від якихось тем, які критикують владу. Рівень відповіді такий, що той, хто порушує такі незручні питання, вони працюють на Росію. Це зараз не час для того, щоб саме в такому тоні критикувати. Для українських журналістів критично важливо, щоб 
влада в Україні була підконтрольна, підзвітна і прозора. Українське суспільство, воно звикло до свободи слова, мабуть, як до повітря, яким дихаєш і не помічаєш цього. Фотографія, якби ми не старались, вона не зупинить війну. Вона може привернути увагу і надати більше допомоги Україні. Мене звати Євген Милорядка, я український фотожурналіст. Працюю на війні з 2014 року. Дійсно було страшно з перших днів, і ти не розумів, що відбувається. Коли ми побачили і перші атаки, і перші жертви, ми дійсно зрозуміли, що Маріуполь буде місцем, куди Росія стягне велику кількість військ. Ми розуміли, що тут важливо залишитись, бо якщо не буде журналістів, якщо не буде ніяких доказів, показати ці злочини буде нікому. Ти розумів з кожним днем, що Місто вже майже оточено. Ми дуже часто перебували в лікарні і також ночували в станції швидкої допомоги. Ми, як і лікарі, да, як поліцейські, як інші там, люди, які працюють в надзвичайних умовах, маємо показувати, що відбувається. Якщо відбувається горе, то ми маємо документувати, ретельно обробляти. Ми теж цивільні особи, і коли ми бачимо, що за день прибуває і прибуває така велика кількість пацієнтів з такою великою кількістю політравм, це точно не можна забути. Коли рятувальники несли Ірину Калініну, цю жінку на ношах, яка померла після. Ми просто документували би, це, ну, би, не думаючи про, що ми маємо там сказати. Після публікації знімків з пологового будинку, так як матеріал розлетівся по всьому світу, а російська пропаганда вона завжди намагається створити велику кількість маніпуляцій, і вони намагаються дискредитувати да, там, чи фотографа, який це зняв, чи відеооператора. Я взагалі б хотів не мати цих фотографій в себе. Але, на жаль, я їх маю, я буду як би, нести да, і показувати світу. Як і всіх українців, нас всіх війна дуже змінила. Вже не залишилось місця для сумнівів, що відбувається. Є таке вислів. Все не так однозначно. Після 24 лютого все зрозуміло, де, де чорне, де біле. And finally, for those with a penchant for tech, AI, artificial intelligence, is the flavor of the month. It may even extend through the year. AI isn't new. What is, though, is a slew of hyper-advanced AI tools that are now available to the public. Take Prime Voice AI, created by US-based 11 Labs. 
Their voice cloning technology allows users to generate speech in the voice of any person with just sample clips as input. It didn't take long for some users to put racist, homophobic and misogynist words in the mouths of various celebrities. And Eleven Labs has promised safeguards to prevent further abuse. Nevertheless, the AI might just work too well for its own good. Take Eleven Labs' tech demo video, a speech given by Hollywood actor Leonardo DiCaprio back in 2014, revoiced with uncanny accuracy to sound like a range of celebrities. We leave you with that video, and we'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. I stand before you not as an expert, but as a concerned citizen. One of the 400,000 people who marched in the streets of New York on Sunday. And the billions of others around the world who want to solve our climate crisis. As an actor, I pretend for a living. I play fictitious characters, often solving fictitious problems. I believe that mankind has looked at climate change in that same way, as if it were fiction. As if pretending that climate change wasn't real would somehow make it go away. But I think we all know better than that now.